This podcast is brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. Be sure to check out and subscribe to my flagship podcast, Everything Voluntary, where I seek to promote respect for the voluntary principle in all walks of life and for all age groups. Thank you very much. Um, I, I want most of our discussion to be a question and answer, but I would like to say a few introductory things to uh, kind of get us started. And let me just state my initial premise when I think about a number of issues. And uh, that initial premise is that I own Walter Williams. I am my property. And you are your property. That's my initial premise. Now, uh, the things that I had to say would be absolutely wrong if the premise is the United States Congress owns me and I do not own myself. Now, when you start off with the idea of self-ownership, well then, certain acts are moral and certain acts are immoral. Uh, The reason why uh, murder is immoral, it violates private property. Uh, Rape is immoral. It violates private property. Uh, Theft is immoral. It violates uh, private property. Now, I believe that most Americans um, have contempt for these ideas. That is, most Americans believe that it is okay for government to forcibly use one American to serve the purposes of another American. And in fact, two-thirds to three-quarters of the federal budget is precisely that. That is where Congress takes the property of one American and gives it to another American in, in, uh, in the name of crop subsidies, business bailouts, uh, welfare, food stamp, and a host of other programs. Now, I'm not making the argument uh, anti-tax argument because I think that every American has an obligation to pay for the constitutionally mandated functions of the federal government and those constitutionally mandated functions of the federal government are enumerated in Article 1, Section 8 of the United States Constitution. There's nowhere in the Constitution that authorizes Congress to take the money of one person and give it to another to whom it does not uh, belong. Some of the other contempt that uh, Americans have of the Constitution, uh, uh, it's a kind of contempt of the founding principles of our country. And this is demonstrated uh, by uh, asking a question, how successful would a politician be today who held the, the moral values of the framers or the founders of our nation. Uh, For example, in 1794, 
Congress appropriated $15,000 to help some French refugees. James Madison, the acknowledged father of the United States Constitution, he stood on the floor of the House irate to protest. He said, and I'm quoting him, I cannot undertake to lay my finger on that article of the Constitution which granted a right to Congress of expending on the objects of benevolence the money of their constituents. James Madison also said, charity is no part of the legislative duty of government. Now can you imagine what the American people would do to a presidential candidate today making the same comments? The American people would run him out of town on a rail because we indeed believe that it's okay if you find a good enough reason to take the money of one American and give it to another to whom it does not belong. They believe that it's a duty of Congress to, uh, to spend the money of their constituents uh, for the purposes of benevolence. Now, um, while I'm against taking one person's money and giving it to another, I'm not against helping our fellow man in need. I think that by reaching into one's own pockets to help one's fellow man in need is praiseworthy and laudable. I think that reaching in somebody else's pockets to help one's fellow man in need is despicable and worthy of condemnation. And, um, and for the Christians among us, when God gave Moses the commandment, thou shalt not steal, I'm pretty sure he did not mean thou shalt not steal unless you got a majority vote in the United States Congress. Now, we find many Americans, they love government because government does things that if a private person did the identical thing, he would go to jail. Uh, consider the following. Suppose I, suppose I see an elderly lady sleeping on a grate in downtown Washington. She's hungry. She needs some medical attention and shelter. And I could walk up to somebody with a gun in my hand. And I could take, I, I could take their $200. And then, having gotten their $200, I can go down and help the lady out. I could buy her some medical attention, some food, and shelter. Would you find me guilty of a crime? I'd be guilty of theft. Suppose I got three people to agree with me that I should take somebody's money by force to help the lady out. Would that be a crime? What if I got a million people? Or 300 million people? the population of the United States, would it be a crime? Yes, it would. Now, I believe most Americans could or might agree with me, but here's the problem. Is there any conceptual distinction between that act and when the agents of the United States Congress tells me, well, Walter, you know that $200 that you made last week that you planned to buy a nice bottle of Lafitte Rothschild Bordeaux wine with? You will not do that with, it, with your money. You'll give to us, and we will go downtown and help the lady out. 
Is there any distinction between those two acts? None. That is, if you press me for a distinction, the only distinction I can find is the first act where I walked to somebody and took their money. That is illegal theft. The second act where the agents of Congress took it, took my money, that's just legal theft. It's just a matter of legality. Now, many people might say, well, Williams, it's legal. Well, for moral people, legality alone cannot be our guide. That is, there are many things in this world that were or are legal, but clearly immoral. That is, slavery was legal. Did that make it moral? The Stalinist, Maoist, Purges, they were legal, but did they make it moral? So the moral question that we have to ask ourselves, is there a moral case for taking what belongs to the, the rightful property of one person and giving it to another to whom it does not belong? And in my many years of life, I have not come up with a moral case for doing that. Um, there are other things that I, uh, topics that I talk about in the book. Actually, the book is a collection of my syndicated columns over the last four or five years, and I believe there's uh, one essay or speech that I gave. I, I talk about a range of topics, and one of them has to do with uh, the issue of, of race in our country, which is a, a topic that uh, flares up every now and then. And, and one of the things that one of the columns I talk about is that most Americans do not realize that most of the pathology that we see in black communities today, such as Baltimore and other cities, is entirely new among black people. That is, the illegitimacy rate is 72% nationally, but, and in some cities, it's higher than that, 80 and 90% illegitimacy rate. But in 1938, the illegitimacy rate among blacks was 11%. Slightly over a third of black children live in two-parent families. That's devastating. But in 1880, and I, I provide the statistics in a book that I wrote several years ago, uh, Race and Economics, in 1880, depending on the city, 70 to 80 percent of black kids lived in two-parent families. In 1925 Harlem, 85 percent of blacks lived in two-parent families. Um, I know I don't look like it, but I'm coming up on 80 years old. And when I was a kid growing up in the slums of North Philadelphia, we did not know anybody who was shot. We did not go to the, uh, bed with the sound of gunshots. Um, the kids who live in the Richard Allen Project today don't have the opportunities to have them to get out that I had in the back in the, in the 40s. Uh, that is, in terms of, of job opportunities. That is, when I was a kid, uh, all my friends who wanted to work could find jobs. That's a different story today. 
In fact, in 1948, the unemployment rate among black teenagers was 9.4%, and the unemployment rate among white teenagers was 10.2%. Black teenagers were more active in the labor force in 1948 than were white teenagers. What explains that? Can we say that, well, gee, back in 1948, there was less racial discrimination and far greater opportunities for blacks than today? That's not true. Or maybe black kids were, were, were high, more highly skilled than white kids. That was not true. It turns out that the minimum wage destroyed many job opportunities for teenagers in general, and particularly uh, black teenagers. Uh, and the little bit of money that a kid can earn after school on the weekends and during the summer is not nearly as important as other things that a kid can learn that will make him more a more valuable worker in the future. Things like, well, you got to come to work Friday even though you got paid Thursday. You have to respect your foreman. You have to uh, dress in a certain manner, conduct yourself in certain ways. And those lessons <coughs> excuse me, are important for all young people, but even more important for young people who go to fraudulent schools, who live in very, very poor pathological households, and if they're going to learn anything that will make them more valuable worker in the future, they're not going to learn in school. They're not going to learn in, in their neighborhoods. They have to learn on the job. And if you cut off that on-the-job opportunity, you, uh, you lessen their chances of upward mobility. And speaking of education, there's something else that the average American, and tragically, uh, the, the average black uh, family does not know is that the education received by black kids in the public schools is absolutely a fraud. That is, the education that white kids get is nothing to write home about. But the education of black kids is devastating. According to the National Assessment of Education Process, the so-called Nations Report Card that's put out by the National Center for Education Statistics, it shows that the average black 12th grader, these tests are given at the 4th grade, 8th grade, and 12th grade. The average black 12th grader, he has the reading and writing and computational skills of the average white 7th or 8th grader. That is just simply fraudulent education. Now, so when he gets his fraudulent diploma, some of them, they go, some kids go to college. And, it's, and college is a disaster for them. And it would be a disaster for anybody, anybody of any race. That is, you, if you're comparing uh, eighth graders of any race with twelfth graders of any race, you're going to be disappointed by the outcome of eighth graders. They're going to be handicapped. And, and some universities, or many universities, engage in, in absolute fraud in the name of promoting what they call diversity today. Uh, a good example, this was a recent scandal at University of uh, North Carolina, where uh, black uh, 
football and, and baseball players were recruited to the uh, campus, and they took uh, phony classes, uh, classes that never met, or classes that would, uh, in the African-American studies department, that never met. And there was one lady who was assigned as a tutor for the uh, basketball and football teams. Uh, she said that the average player on the team could not read and write at the eighth grade level. And some of them, she said about 15% of them, could not do so at the third and fourth grade level. Now, this is an absolute fraud by the University of uh, North Carolina, and it's true in many other schools as well. But they recruited these kids because they're damn good basketball players and football players, and the University of North Carolina, between the basketball program and the football program, it picks up $40 million a year. And so these kids uh, are, are, are exploited, in my opinion, because they don't get, they don't share in that $40 million. And they come out of college, they're not going to, all of them, a very tiny percentage of them are going to get in professional uh, football and basketball. And so they're going to get a job at, at Home Depot uh, or somewhere else, and they're going to kind of suffer through the memories of being hailed as a champion on campus while they're on campus and live a life of a disappointment. Well, there, there are a number of other topics uh, in, the, uh, in, the, uh, uh, in America's contempt for uh, liberty, but I'd like to stop here and maybe uh, address uh, some of your uh, questions or, or observations. And, and you can ask hard questions. Um, uh, you need not feel as though you owe me any undue courtesy uh, and worry about insulting me because I am uninsultable. <laughs> the only way you could possibly insult me is suggest that I'm not pretty good in basketball and, and that's a matter of ethnic pride that I take seriously. <laughs> Thank you. You're not going to remind them that you're related to Julius Irving, right? Yeah, his cousin of mine, yeah. Yes, okay. But he did, he did much better than I did. Okay. <laughs> now, now, since you closed on the discussion of the University of North Carolina, then I'll ask, should college athletes then unionize to get more rights? Well, I think that we... Oh, you can sit down. I'll take the questions. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that uh, we should try to... We should end the charade of the scholar-athlete. It is indeed a charade. And we ought to pay these young men a market price. Everybody at the university, <clears throat> coaches are getting paid $2 million a year, uh, assistant coaches a million, and everybody's earning a whole lot of money except the kids who are actually playing the basketball and playing football. And so I think we should just need, we need to get rid of the charade. Uh, yes. Another question about higher education. Another question about higher education. You um, sort of uh, criticize uh, programs that take from A and give to B. I'm a Virginia taxpayer, but I don't go to George Mason. What do you do with uh, public education and higher education in particular? Well, I think that um, nobody's obligated to educate somebody else's uh, kid. 
Um, um, and, and matter of fact, I think that there's a huge misallocation of resources. I think that roughly 50% of, uh, of students who are on college campuses don't belong on college campuses. They are ill-prepared. But I think that we should have, I, you see, one of the problems with public education is that uh, financial markets are not as liquid as we, uh, or as perfect as we'd like for them to be. What I would like to see is people to be able to get loans, pay for their own education, and then be forced to pay, pay it back, as opposed to uh, having taxpayers pay for their education. Uh, yes. Hi, Carl Golovin. Uh, scripture, I think, requires that, uh, or promises that honest weights and measures are among the things that will lead towards liberty and, and uh, functional relationships among people. And I wanted to ask if, if you've ever read Andrew Jackson's farewell address from 1837 on, this, on the topic of honest money. He ended the second bank of the U.S., and he pointed how a gold and silver coin were meant to be uh, circulating as money to protect the wealth of the laboring class from being inflated away by the largest corporations, banks, and politicians, conjuring more and more credit money into existence to enrich themselves while taxing away the value of the paper money people were left with. Um, even going back to Roger Sherman, caveat against injustice on the evils of a fluctuating medium of exchange from 1752. Yeah. Have we just wanted it to be so easy, having easy credit money, that we've lost the sense that liberty comes from Honesty and relationships. Yeah, well, um, yeah, honesty is very, very important, and honest money is very, very important. Uh, that is, uh, inflation is equivalent to having uh, all of us lying to one another. Um, and I think that, um, that that's one of the, uh, Jackson is uh, one of my heroes because he did get rid of the, uh, the second national bank, and, and the first national bank uh, was uh, heavily criticized by uh, uh, Jefferson and Mason and some of the other uh, founders. Um, but however, um, the nation or people saw fit to have the Federal Reserve Act um, of uh, 1913, I believe it was, and, and what the uh, Federal Reserve Act did, it enables the, uh, uh, enables the government to steal from its citizens uh, through uh, inflating the currency. Um, that is, and if you see uh, the effect, the economic effects of inflation is to redistribute income from creditors to debtors. And you ask, well, who's the greatest debtor in our country? Uh, who has the greatest in, uh, 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 interest in inflation? It's uh, namely it's the United States government. And I've suggested to people and, um, that if they're ever on trial, uh, charged with uh, charged with uh, counterfeiting, they should just tell the judge that they were, they were engaging in monetary policy. So I have, I think, an, an, an easy question, and I have no idea what your answer is going to be, though, Dr. Williams. Yeah. You've been at this for a, for a few years. Are you optimistic for the future or pessimistic, and uh, what is your uh, reasoning for your answer? Well, people have asked me uh, that question, and, um, and my initial response is to ask them is, are the American people 
as human beings, are we any different from the Romans, from the Portuguese, from the French, from the Spanish, from the British? These are great empires of the past that went down the tubes. Uh, you know, it's kind of remarkable if you look at some of the history. Uh, in, in, in 1887, during Queen Victoria's Jubilee, had someone suggested that Great Britain would become a third-rate nation, challenged on the high seas and almost lose to a sixth-rate nation, such as Argentina, you would have been put into the insane asylum. It was inconceivable that Great Britain would become a third-rate nation, and it was inconceivable that anybody would challenge Great Britain on the high seas. It was the mightiest uh, sea power in the world. Matter of fact, people used to say that the sun would never set on the British crown. Interesting story aside to that. Uh, somebody said in response to that, the reason why the sun never set on the British crown is because God did not trust the British in the dark. <laughs> but so, so we're, 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 we're following a path of other great empires of the past. Now, if there's an optimistic note, it's that the optimistic note is that that the first two years of the Obama administration, where they held the White House, the Senate, and the House of Representatives, these people became so brazen in the kind of things that they were doing, running roughshod over our liberties, that for the first time in my life, you hear, you hear people starting to debate about the Constitution. There was the emergence of the Tea Party movement. Uh, states attorney generals were suing the federal government. Uh, state legislatures were passing Tenth Amendment resolutions. So there's a, a budding spirit of rebellion across the land. But the question is, is whether it's too little and too late. I would hope that that's not a case. I would hope that there's a continued uh, spirit of rebellion. And, and there's another optic, uh, uh, note of optimism, and that's, that's suggested by a forthcoming book by Charles Murray. Uh, he's the fellow who wrote Losing Ground uh, back in the uh, 80s. And he's proposing a way for the Americans to engage in, in just disobedience of various laws. He's saying, well, uh, that OSHA just could not, uh, um, or EPA just could not totally police all the activities that, they're, that they want to police. They just don't have the, uh, the tools to do so. That is, if every American ignored EPA regulations, uh, uh, the the, uh, the administration would have to somehow back down. And he was suggesting that, that um, and I haven't read the book, I just got uh, a description of it, um, but he's suggesting that we set up a, a big, a large fund to be able to pay the fines of some of the people who would ignore 
the EPA regulations, but the rest of us, uh, the, you know, the people who would, who would have to pay fines, but the rest of us just ignore it. I mean, there's something to be said for civil disobedience. And there's uh, my, my column next week um, talks about the, the level of ignorance that Americans have about the Constitution. Uh, and, uh, you know, the average American thinks that the framers gave us the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution, so the, the right to keep and bear arms, so that we could go deer and duck hunting and, you know, protect our house against burglars. But that's not why the framers of the Constitution gave us the Second Amendment. They explicitly said, and these are quotes, I have the quotes by Hamilton and, and Madison and Jefferson and George Mason. They explicitly said to enable the American people to protect themselves against their elected representatives. To enable the, the American people to, Thomas Jefferson said, to protect themselves against the rulers. Now, he was not talking about King George. He's talking about the United States Constitution. As a matter of fact, uh, very few Americans appreciate the level of distrust that the framers and founders had for the United States Congress. It was a great level of distrust. If you just read through the Constitution, or just, just read through the, the Bill of Rights. Look, look at the language of the Bill of Rights. It says, Congress shall not infringe. Congress shall not disparage. Congress shall not prohibit. Now, if the framers did not believe Congress would do that, why would they put it there? That is, I've suggested to people that when we die, and if at our next destination we see anything like a Bill of Rights, we know that we're in hell. <laughs> Be because a Bill of Rights in heaven would be an insult to God. He'd be saying that we, couldn't, we can't trust God. And so the framers, but the framers recognize that we do need government. But government is, the essence of government is coercion and force. And so we do need government, so let's keep it as small as possible. And, and, if, you, and if you look at, at the if you read Federalist Paper 45, and the Federalist Papers, for some of you who have forgotten, was, they were written by Hamilton, uh, John Jay, and James Madison, and they were trying to convince the citizens of New York to ratify the Constitution. They're making arguments for the ratification of the Constitution. And in Federalist Paper 45, Madison was trying to explain just what the Constitution is about. Because the... Americans at that time, they did not want to give up their rights to a central government. And let me just kind of go back a minute because, uh, a bit, the, the Treaty of Paris, written in 1783, which you should read, it declared, it, set, it, it uh, ended the war between the colonies and Great Britain, it declared that each state was a sovereign nation. That is, there were 13 sovereign nations. And, and so these 13 sovereign nations came together in 1787 to create the federal government. That is, the federal government is an agent of, these, of the principles. That is, the, the states were the principles and the federal government was the agent. And so the, um, 
So, so the, the oh, okay, going back to uh, Federalist Paper 45, James Madison trying, trying to explain to these people who jealously guarded their uh, sovereignty, he said, and I'm virtually quoting him, he said that the powers that we have delegated to the federal government are few and well-defined and restricted mostly to external affairs. The powers left with the states and the people are indefinite and numerous. That's his statement in Federalist Paper 45. Now, if you turn that upside down, you'd have what we have today. The powers of the federal government are indefinite and numerous. And those of the people in the states are, 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 uh, are, are, are well-defined. And so, if we ask the question, which way are we headed as a nation, tiny steps at a time, are we headed towards more personal liberty, or are we headed towards more government control over our lives? I think it would unambiguously be the latter. There's no fellow back there. Well, get this guy first, and get this guy first, and then go to him. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Williams, my question is kind of twofold, uh, and, it, and it addresses the black community. Uh, I, live in, I live in Baltimore, and I had experience of teaching uh, high school in Baltimore. And I'm wondering, is it possible to change the rhetoric and the mentality of two things, uh, educators in the, in the school system and elected officials in the municipality? Because uh, my, one of my biggest dilemmas was administrators being forced to pass students. I, I experienced that. I went down, a, a student didn't receive a, pre, a passing grade, and the administrator said we needed to pass him. I don't know the pressure. And also, as far as elected officials, getting them instead of treating the community as victims, being addressing the community and saying, these are statistics on students who are in a two-parent family. These are uh, uh, the statistics of people who are, whether they have a, a religious background or whatever. Is it any way you think of changing uh, that mentality in either uh, administrators in the education system or elected officials? Yeah. And one thing before I do that, I, I will have to say that uh, doc, I've told him before, Dr. Williams is probably my biggest inspiration in going back and getting my degree and going on teaching high school. So I, I thank him for that. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I think that one of the problems is that um, um, we can't get rid of uh, students whose, uh, who, who are, who, whose minds are alien and hostile to the edu education process. That is, we have to have a mechanism where we can stop these students from interfering with the education of others. There have been several studies, and I can't cite them because I read them some years ago. It says with a 25-person class, the uh, many teachers are spending up to 90% of the class time on discipline. If they could remove just six students, the discipline time would go down to the national average around 17 18%. But they can't get rid of students. That is, it's very much like you uh, you asking me, well, Williams, here's a barrel of apples, and we want, them keep, we want you to keep them fresh, but you can't get rid of the rotten ones. <laughs> That's an impossible uh, job. And I think from, from a political point of view, um, that just makes sense that 
that we need to uh, uh, deliver education to those kids who can best use the education. And those who can best use the education are kids who have parents who care and parents who will make them do their homework. And, and, and I think that, that money is not the solution to uh, our education problems because uh, there, there are some simple things that are needed for kids to get a good education. Uh, somebody has to make the kid do his homework. Somebody has to make the kid go to bed on time so he can get about 10 hours sleep. Somebody has to wake the kid up and get him breakfast. And somebody has to make sure that he obeys the teacher. These are critical inputs. If, if, these, if these inputs are not met, then I don't care how much money you put in education, it's going to be a failure. But we have to ask the question, which one of those inputs can be met by politicians? I mean, what can, what, what, what can Obama do? Or what can a governor do? What can a mayor do to do these basic functions? And if they're not done, they, no matter how much money you put in education, it's going to be very, un, it's not going to work. And, and I feel like what, what the political question that one faces is very much like uh, if, if you're in charge of the highways, and you see drunk drivers and sober drivers on the highway. What's your first order of business? Your first priority ought to be to get the drunk ones off. Now, someone might say, well, what, what are we going to do with the drunk ones? Well, I don't care whether you can't do anything at all, but the first order of business is to get the drunk ones off. That's the same thing you do with education. That is, there are kids who are making education impossible for other kids. And what do you do with them? Well, you get them out. You get them out of the school. And somebody might say, well, what do you do with them? Well, I don't know what you're going to do with them, but you, gotta, you have to stop them from making education impossible for those kids who want to learn and who have parents who want, to, who want them to learn. It's a difficult chore, and the, the political forces aren't on our side. They're on the side of the National Education Association. I mean, you have, in Philadelphia, I believe uh, the waiting list for parents, predominantly black parents, for charter schools is 21,000. Right now, 21,000 parents are on the waiting list to get their kids into charter schools. That's a sad commentary that there are such a waiting list exists, and it's also evidence that there are at least some parents who want a better education for their children. Uh, Patrick Terrell with the Heritage Foundation. On the topic of owning ourselves, I was wondering what, where you stand on the topic of assisted suicide because it um, opens incentives that hurt the vulnerable and the weak, although the person committing suicide owns himself. Well, uh, if, if I own Walter Williams, you know, I, I, can put the, I, I can decide not to live. But if, but if the United States Congress owns me, then I just I don't have that right. I mean, the true test of ownership is whether you can, whether you have full rights over your own body. I'm not saying that you have the rights to impose injure, injury on other people. 
but you have the right to take your own life. And so, and, and maybe one way to do that is to kind of have a, uh, um, what do they call it, um, the document that you can that you say I don't want any more, uh, a living will. Yes, yeah. Uh, and, you know, and people say uh, things like, well, uh, in terms of self ownership, they say, well, look, Williams, let's say I don't want to wear a seatbelt. Let's suppose that's the case. I do wear a seatbelt, but let's suppose I don't want to wear a seatbelt. Well, the argument the people say, well, look, Williams. Uh, if you drive a car without a seatbelt and you have an accident and you turn into a vegetable, you'll be a burden on society. That's why we're going to make you wear a seatbelt. Well, that's an issue. It doesn't have anything to do with personal liberty and private ownership. That's not a, it's not a problem of personal liberty and private ownership, uh, self-ownership. It's a problem of socialism. That is, uh, you should not... Nobody should be required to take care of me for any reason. But once you get government to taking care of you, to make decisions, then uh, government can tell you how to live. It's kind of like my mother. When, you know, when boys get around 14 or 15 years old and start smelling themselves, they think they can take over the household. And my mother used to say to me, boy, as long as you're living in my house and I'm paying the bills, you're going to do what I say. Well, that's okay for kids, but what about adults? You want the government to say, well, as long as we're paying the bills, you're going to do what I say, do what we say. That's, uh, that, that's not a good way for adults to live. Um, he's come around. He wants to do it with a microphone, right? Yes, I think so. Okay. You know, I'm, get, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna get down there. Next but time, I'll, get I'll, two people. Yes, you will get two, but I'll, I'll interrupt on you. Have one good article too in here that's of interest to me in political shenanigans. Uh, in 2009, you write about the Congress and its uh, apology for slavery, and you have some very interesting economic lessons about that. You want to comment? The comment about um, uh, slavery. Uh, it, it, it doesn't make me very popular. Matter of fact, I was interviewing for the job in 1971 <laughs> at the University of Massachusetts. I didn't know about the place before I went. I would not have gone up there to interview for a job. But anyway, some some professors were standing around during a, a reception they were holding for me, and these were leftist professors. And one asked me, "Well, what do you think about the relationship between capitalism and slavery?" And I said, "Well, I think slavery has existed." Uh, under every uh, economic system, he says, "No, I want to think. I, I, I want to ask you about the what you think about the slavery of your ancestors and slavery of your ancestors." So, I said, "Slavery is a horrible institution, but I have benefited immensely from the suffering and the slavery of my ancestors, enslavement of my ancestors." And the guy was just standing in shock. And so I said, "Well." He asked me how I explain myself. But I said, my wealth and my freedom is higher as a result of being born in the United States than any country in Africa. And I asked them, how was it that I came to be born in in the United States? I, was, I came to be born in the United States because of slavery. 
And so I have personally been, now I'm not saying that slavery is good, but I'm saying that uh, I've benefited from it. And most blacks have benefited. That is, black Americans, and I document this in my book, uh, Race and Economics, if you just add up the income that black Americans earn each year and thought of us as a nation, we would be the 17th or 18th richest nation on the face of the earth. And, and then, matter of fact, that's richer than any nation uh, on the continent of Africa. And so, you, know, you can say the same thing uh, you can say about you know, colonialism, that is, the, or, Rome, or the conquest of the Romans when they took over England. The people in England, they were barbarians. And the Romans, they, they imported uh, navigation skills and they imported uh, 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 education technology and all that uh, importation of the wisdom of the, of the Romans uh, ultimately made Great Britain the mightiest nation on the face of earth. And it was because of colonialism. Again, I'm not making an argument in favor of colonialism, but you can't deny the historical facts. And so slavery was a historical fact that whereby I benefited from, from it. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Williams. You have highlighted three things uh, this afternoon, uh, contempt for liberty, racial disparity, and higher ed fraud. Would you concur that one of the principal reasons why we have contempt for liberty is that liberty is very underrepresented in all the dimensions of popular culture, in movies, in music, in the things that influence one's actions? And the question behind that is, given that you intercess with a lot of movement individuals, might you take the opportunity to explain to them that one of the reasons why we have contempt for liberty, one of the places that it's learned, is in universities. So I'll ask you, behind a previous event of yours, if you were reconvening the Fairmont Conference and doing another one, would you think that would be a good platform to examine how to move, in terms of racial disparities, more African Americans from the public sector ecosystem to the private sector ecosystem, would you also entertain amending the Civil Rights Act of 1965 to prohibit, 64, I'm sorry, to prohibit discrimination in employment based on credentials? And would you entertain intercessing with your colleagues in the conservative movement that they need to take good content like this and put it in more infotaining settings? Um, well, if I don't answer all your questions, um, um, you can remind me, because, uh, you know, one of, the, uh, one of the hazards of growing old is that your, your mind is the first thing to go. The second is worse. Uh, <laughs> um, but I, I think that... <laughs> I've, I, as I've said in the, in the book, and as I've said on many, many occasions, uh, one of our very important jobs is to try to sell our fellow Americans on the moral superiority of uh, liberty and its uh, main ingredient, uh, limited government. Uh, so far as uh, credentialism, uh, that, that, that is a major problem. Uh, that is, uh, 
uh, people who have uh, credentials, they, they use the uh, credentials to, to keep others out uh, to uh, maintain their higher income. And, um, and, and, and I've written a lot about this, and particularly in occupational licensing where, um, and this is a little bit away from your question, but um, it, it cuts off the bottom rungs of the economic ladder. I point out that um, in, in the 1920s, a poor, illiterate Italian, if he had in industry and ambition, he can go out and buy a used car and write the word taxi on it, and he was in business for himself. Um, today, that opportunity is not as... Is, is not as open. Uh, in many cities, they have licensing regulations. In New York, you have to buy a medallion to own and operate one taxi, and the medallion is $700,000. Uh, in Boston and Chicago, you talk about three hundred dollars or $400,000, $500,000. So the effect of this licensing law is to keep people out so that they can earn, uh, so that incumbents can earn a higher income by charging higher prices. And you see the desire to maintain this monopoly with the lawsuits against Uber and, and, uh, and the other, some of the private uh, carriers coming in uh, competing with the uh, incumbent uh, cab uh, business. Now, this, this, this phenomenon is widespread. It's, it's across many, uh, ap uh, many occupations and many professions. The medical profession is a good example. Uh, it wants to keep. It, it wants to have licensing laws to keep uh, to keep people out to restrict the entry into the medicine, and and it turns out very interestingly if you look at licensing boards, occupational licensing boards, uh, two thirds of the boards across the country, the the members are people who are in the profession themselves. That is the doctors occupy totally the licensing board to become a doctor. They decide who has, the, uh, uh, who has the right to become a doctor and under what conditions. And of course the doctors will say, well who else is better able to judge whether a person should be a doctor uh, or regulate, who's, who, who else is better able to uh, uh, regulate doctors than other doctors? Well with that kind of reasoning you would make Al Capone the attorney general. That is, uh, who is better able to regulate criminals than, than other criminals? Uh, so, so I'm for open market entry. I'm for peaceful voluntary exchange between people. And if that's, uh, 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 and that requires some of the, the elimination of credentialization. Uh, let's do two more. The fellow there and then him. Hi, my name is Christopher Goins. Um, you mentioned if you start from the premise of Walter Williams owning Walter Williams, a person owning themselves, um, how does that, it sounds like very Rothbardian to me, so how does that not lead to um, anarchism? Well, I, I'm not an anarchist. I believe that we do need uh, some government. I believe that, that people have... Uh, uh, that, that government is necessary. That is, um, uh, Payne said, government under the worst of circumstances is a necessary evil. Under the, uh, <coughs> under, the, the under some circumstances, it can become intolerable. 
Um, I believe that we have the right, that is, as owners of our own body, we have the right to delegate certain things to the, to the government. That is, I have the right, since I have the right to protect myself uh, from criminals or from anybody else, then I have the right to delegate that authority to the federal government or to, any, to some government level to protect me. I have the right to say, well, look, if we have more orderly society if, the, if a government agency is involved in protection, have a police force. Now, I don't have a right to take your money. I don't have a natural right or any other right to take your money, so therefore I cannot delegate that right to government to take your money. And so the only rights, in my, in, in, from a moral point of view, the only rights that can be delegated to the federal government are rights that you possess yourself, that human beings possess themselves. And so that might sound like a, a Rothbard a little bit. Uh, but um, but I, I don't see myself as a follower of Rothbard. Uh, you know, I take a point of view that, like Milton Friedman. Uh, he says that there are only two kinds of... Somebody asked him about Chicago School of Economics versus Hayekian or Austrian uh, School of Economics. And he says, well, there are only two kinds of economists, uh, good economists and bad economists. Yeah. Al Milliken, uh, AM Media. Our United States Supreme Court, uh, how do you believe they've shown contempt for liberty in the recent years? Well, they, uh, they, they don't hold as unconstitutional many things that Congress is doing. Um, that is, uh, it's, it, it is not in the Constitution for Congress to do most of what it does. That is, two-thirds to three-quarters of, of all federal spending, there's no constitutional authority for it. I mean, the, wor the word education does not even appear in the Constitution, but the government's involved in it. That is, if you look at the, what the founders say, they say that Congress can only do those enumerated things, the things that are enumerated in Article One of the of the of the, um, in the Article One, Section Eight of the United States Constitution. Um, but um, the, yeah, the Supreme Court has been derelict, and Jefferson, both Jefferson and Madison, they warned us. They said, "Do not allow." the courts to be the final arbiter of what's constitutional or not. He says, if we allow the courts to be the final arbiter, then we'll be living under oligarchy. And that's, in fact, uh, what, what, what we're doing. Um, and I, I think that, um, I think that it's, it's tragic that the, that the Supreme Court, and I would say most of its members, have little respect for the United States Constitution. There's probably two members, I'm not going to mention their names, <laughs> probably two members that have respect for the United States Constitution and are willing to go to bat for it. Look, folks, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Liberty Classroom is the premier online university for libertarian and free market thought. Take courses from your computer or while driving in your car. To sign up for Liberty Classroom, please use my special link at libertyclassroom.info. That's libertyclassroom.info. 
please consider supporting this podcast and everythingvoluntary.com by visiting patreon.com forward slash EVC or paypal.me forward slash everythingvoluntary. Thank you. Thank you.